I'd like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just, I, it's, a, it's to me, it's a silly story. Jesus is God's son, but he is It's idolization, basically, the idea that there is a human being that can be viewed as a god. I, I, I believe it. That uh, the teachings of Jesus, uh, they ring true to me. This the way it makes sense to live that way. Jesus, I believe, was a liberal, and I think looking at where we're going, I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day, um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person, um, maybe by following his teachings, and and maybe it will be a, a fit for me, and maybe it won't, but. You know, well, I have a lifetime to figure that out. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Steve Carter, and it's an honor to be here with you all. Um, recently, my family and I we moved to Arizona. My wife's name is Sarah, so I uh, she's from Arizona, which I. Uh, now referred to as Sarazona. Um, we, we've been married uh, 15 years almost in March. Uh, we've got two kids. I've uh, got a 10-year-old son named Emerson. He looks like Gene Hackman. Not sure how that happened. Um, uh, my daughter's five. Uh, she, 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 her name is Mercy, but she hasn't learned what that word means yet. Um, but as you can tell, I'm in all black. We're huge fans of Johnny Cash and... Um, his story is just a remarkable one. Someone who um, was carrying so much pain, so much hurt, so much shame, looking for his father's approval and couldn't find it. Had all the success in the world, but didn't have peace. And there was a woman by the name of June Carter who was equally talented, um, and she had this joy. And she was just there in his life. And Johnny was just enamored by her and enamored by what she had. And so uh, we named her daughter Mercy June Carter. Um, hopefully that she'd be someone who could um, find a Johnny Cash and lead him to the Lord. So that's, that's my hope. So, uh, but uh, uh, it's, an honor, it's an honor to be here. And we're in this series called Explore God. And the idea or the question is, is Jesus really God? Now, my son and I, we have a little bit of a tradition. Um, we we kind of put mercy to bed, and then we sneak out of the house at like 8.30, and we do a two-and-a-half-mile walk around our neighborhood, and, and we'll just talk about life, uh, talk about sports. Uh, I'll try to kind of get to know him a little bit. He asks me questions about just work and travel and teaching, and so he's like, hey, hey, what are you teaching on next? And I was like, oh, is this, this question, is Jesus really God? And he goes, you're going to tell him, right? And I was like, I, 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 yeah. He's like, okay, good. Next question. And I'm like, man, all right. So, uh, so that's my hope. Uh, uh, you can send him a, an, an email and let him know if uh, I actually was able to help you answer this question. But uh, you have to understand that the, the scriptures are pretty fascinating in so many levels. Um, one, it, it details uh, a very human story uh, about God's kind of pursuit of humanity. Um, but you also kind of see how people understood the concept of God or gods by the different cultures and the different people groups that the Hebrew people ran into. And you have to understand that um, back in the Old Testament or what we would know as the Hebrew scriptures, they, they had all of these views of the gods. 
Back then, they thought that gods had certain jurisdictions or zip codes. And what these people, nations other than Israel, and sometimes Israel too, they would create fashion idols, and the whole attempt was to keep the gods happy. The fear was that the gods would be angry. And if the gods were angry, then those gods would actually begin to do things to prevent blessing, uh, prevent childbirth, prevent security from other nations, prevent financial prosperity. And this was kind of the culture that was around the Hebrew people. And so if you start flipping through the scriptures, you begin to see there were all of these practices that the other nations would do to try to keep the gods happy. You get to the New Testament, and you start to see kind of the the, the Romans, and you, you get to learn about Greek mythology and Greek culture, and all it was was just this pursuit of trying to be godlike, and they were enamored by the body. And they would have practices that they would look at a little child, and if the child wasn't what they thought would grow up to be beautiful or it wasn't the right gender for their liking, they'd actually would leave the child. I mean, just baffling. And they had all of these practices because they believed that by their looks or by their hard work, they could achieve God-like status. And in the midst of all of this, there was this man a man by the name of Jesus, uh, a man from a town that nothing really great ever came from, who just walked this earth. And the question is, really, who really was this man? And is there more to this man than we actually see or think or wrestle about? Or was he just a man? See, the Hebrew people They had these messianic expectations, a longing and a hope, almost for a new Moses, someone who would lead them out of oppression because they were living in occupation under the thumb and the rule of Rome. So they had these hopes that someone's going to lead us out of that. But in many ways, they missed what this man was really going to lead them out of. And today, I want to help you see this. Now, to do that, I want to take you to a couple passages of Scripture. The first one is in Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. If not, it will be up on the screen. But Jesus takes his disciples, and and disciples, uh, you have to understand, um, from your Easter pageants, maybe growing up, you you might think that they were in their 40s or 50s, but these disciples were high school-age students. One was probably a college student. One was probably a a junior high-age student. And they were following this teacher, this rabbi named Jesus. And Jesus does something that no other rabbi would do. Jesus says, let's go 17 miles to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan city. It is where the god of Pan was. A Greek god. Like they, and and, the, and the, the kind of worship that they would do to celebrate this god every two years, 250,000 people would descend in this valley And they would begin to do practices to try and appease the God of Pan. And and if I told you, you wouldn't even believe what they would do. It was was worse than Las Vegas could ever be. 
And, and, and I need you to understand, Jesus takes his disciples, not to this kind of pagan rave. No, he takes his disciples to this place. But on the way there, he asks this compelling question. It says this, verse 13, chapter 16, the book of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, that was Jesus' cousin. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So simple question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a way of saying, who do people say the Son of God is? Who, who do people say this Messiah, this anointed, who, who do people say this Son of Man is? It's got to be John the Baptist. I mean, he's a good teacher. I mean, Elijah, people, people, Elijah, Jeremiah, those were two great prophets. Some other prophets were probably thrown out there. But then Jesus flips it like a great teacher like a great rabbi, and he looks at one of them, and look what he says, verse 15, but what about you? And just imagine being there. You've been walking for 17 miles. You don't know where you're going, and then Jesus just stops and goes, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm here to tell you, I don't think that there's a more critical question for us to know the answer to than this. Who do you say he is? I just imagine if Jesus were to ask you, who do you say I am? What would your answer be? And Peter right on the spot goes, you are the Messiah. In Hebrew, the Messiah literally just means anointed one. In Greek, it's where we get the word Christ, anointed one. Where we get the word Christians, little anointed ones. And this idea, because many people think Jesus' last name was Christ. No, it was a title. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. The son of the living God. And Jesus goes, very well. You answered correctly. But I find that for many people, and I've traveled and had the privilege to, to be in Palestine and, 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 and sit with imams. And, and I love to ask them, who do you say Jesus is? And, and one of them, a very high up official, was like, he's a prophet. Okay. I've sat with college students. Who's Jesus? I don't even think he existed, which is kind of hard for me. Um, and, and I'll start and keep asking people. And they have all of these different thoughts about who Jesus is. I don't know if any of you like C.S. Lewis, but Mere Christianity is a just wildly beautiful book. And in this book, he has this quote, and he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is what scholars would call the great trilemma. And that what C.S. Lewis was unpacking was that every one of us has a choice. When we are asked the simple question, who do you say he is? There are only three answers. And Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. And this is what we have to understand because people want to say, oh, he's a great moral teacher. A great moral teacher, he said he was God. Oh, yeah, he had great ethics. Well, then you have to say, no, no, no. If I flip through four, chap- four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I look at his life and I read it and I have to see the claims that he makes about himself, what he was trying to do on this earth, I have to read it with eyes that say he's either lying out of his mind or he is who he says he is. And and this is where you have to make that decision. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your stature. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter what political party you, you go for. It doesn't matter if you're a Packer fan. You have to make this decision. And you have to come to a place where you sit here and you go, no, I look at the scriptures and I read what he says. And he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Who is he to you? I'll tell you what, what doesn't keep me up at night is not what the Bible tells me not to do. What keeps me up at night is what I see Jesus doing and what he invites me to do. When he invites me to forgive my enemies. When he tells me to extend grace. And when I find myself saying, oh, he's Lord. Then what that literally means is everything that he says and does. I'm trying to live under and live into. But I think sometimes in some areas we call him Lord. But in some areas we go, no, Jesus was crazy to love those people. Oh, and I think, he, I, I think they must have got that story wrong. I, think I don't think that's how it must have went. And so in some areas for Christians, they, they try to do all three. He's Lord in this area of my life, but in this area of harboring bitterness or this area where I don't want healing or this area with my finances or this area, he's just crazy or he's a liar. And this is what the invitation of being a true Talmudim, a true disciple is, is to say, no, no, I want you to be Lord over my life. And if you say that, and if you believe that, then you are proclaiming, yes, you are who you say you are. You are the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the one to come. You are the one. But if not, then who is he to you? And you have to just think about this for a second. Everything changed because of this man. Even our calendar 
And I was born in 1979. And I think about that. 1979. What is that? That's 1979 years after the birth of Christ. I mean, we, our, our whole calendar is set around this man's life. Uh, let's think about our hospitals. We drive by hospitals. Hospitals are like Good Shepherd Hospital, Mercy Hospital. They're all hospitals, for the most part, that are based around the gospel, like our names. You think about publishing, number one book that's ever been sold, reprinted, 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 the Bible. You think about what's being taught, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount in, the, in, in, in our universities. And you sit here and you go, this isn't just something that's happened. And, and then you think, how did it get from where it was to today? It, it, when you really sit and think about it, it's mind-boggling. There's no internet. How, how some high school students got so moved with the Spirit of God that they began just to kind of share this message. Something literally happened. And for them, what happened was that Jesus was willing to die for us, but it wasn't just his death. It was more than that. There was one event that transformed everything, and it was the story of Easter. It was resurrection. I love what Andy Stanley says. Uh, he, He says, if someone predicts their own death, someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should just go with whatever that person says. It's just a brilliant thought. And this, this is what happened. There were many people back in, in the days of Jesus who said that they were a Messiah. I, I, literally, if Jesus' 30 to 33 years was in the middle of a 100-year span, there were 18 different people who said, I'm the Messiah. I, I, I'm the liberator. I'm going to set the Hebrew people free. And the truth is they died and everything scattered and their movement came to nothing. But Jesus dies and he told people he was going to die and then he resurrects and he told people he was going to rise in three days and he pulls it off and then he starts seeing people who were like, you were dead. And then he's like, I'm not anymore. I'm actually alive. And they were like, what? And hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. And that does something when you see someone who was dead and then you see them alive, it does something. It does something for me when I saw my dad who was as angry as can be. I mean, he carried a briefcase and had a loaded 357 Magnum in it. That was my childhood. And he'd come home, put it on, open up the, the briefcase, and there it was. You did not walk out of line in my house. And God got a hold of him. My sophomore year of college, on my 19th birthday, got the chance to baptize my father. And God did something in his life. And I look at him and I go, man, you were angry. And you were filled with so much pain and suffering. And then there was like this living resurrection that happened. And all of a sudden, joy just became. And it's like, that's only could be because somehow he said, I need this man to be Lord of my life. I'll, I'll be just quite transparent. I don't know how much longer I have with my dad. A number of months 
A number of years ago, he had leukemia, had a bone marrow transplant. I can only talk to him on the phone for about six minutes at a time because his lungs have metastasized. And, and yet I watch him and I have these like memories of how before Christ I think he would have handled this situation and how I'm watching him handle it now with this peace and this trust and this sense that it's gonna be okay. I, I just need you to understand that. Like you see that in action and you go, something's happening, something's real. But the first church I mean, it was built on people who saw a man who was dead and a man who came back alive and said death and evil once and for all is defeated. And that does something to you. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts. And, and the book of Acts is amazing because it just kind of details this account. Because you, you get to Acts chapter 5 and, and these disciples who literally, they were untrained, unschooled, ordinary men. They didn't have anything that kind of set them apart. And all of a sudden now, they are preaching, they are healing, there are things that are happening because when you see a man who was dead and now you see that he's alive, it does something in you. And you begin to go, I can't believe this. The Spirit of God came over them and they were preaching, they were healing, but the religious leaders who ran the temple were like, this is getting out of hand. We got to beat them we got to shut them up. we got to do something because they're saying this guy's name, Jesus, and this is bad for business. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders, they gather together. And look what it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 35. This man named Gamaliel, this man named Gamaliel, who was this amazing rabbi, this amazing thought leader, he gets up to address the crowd. And verse 35 says this, Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, <clears throat> consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. It's going to be like Thutis and Judas the Galilean. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Brilliant rabbinic thought. If Jesus is like Thutis, if Jesus is like Judas the Galilean, and once he dies and everybody scatters, if it's of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you're not going to be battling against humans. You will actually be battling and fighting against the one true God. So let him go. And let's just see. I wish, I wish that right now I could have a conversation with Gamaliel and go, now what do you think? Do you think it was of human origin? Because I'll be honest, driving here from O'Hare Airport, I didn't pass by any second Baptist church of Thutis 
or third congregational community church of Judas the Galilean. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousand churches that celebrate and are trying to go deeper with Jesus. And even in the face of brokenness and pain and not always doing it well, there it continues to grow and it continues to go. And it just steps back and I go, who is he to you? And there's a moment where I think all of us, all of us in our own way, we kind of fight against God. And we're wrestled with the very personal question that Jesus asked Peter, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And we, we must be able to make that claim. And so the remaining time, I just want to do my best, my very best chance at trying to showcase to you who I think he really was. And I hope, I hope, I hope that none of you will walk away saying, ah, he's a liar, and Jesus was a lunatic. But I hope maybe for some of you, your hearts and your minds would be open just to consider, could he really be Lord? Maybe even a slight variation for some of you who would say that you are disciples. Could he be Lord even over this area of my life? You've got to imagine that one of Gamaliel's prized disciples, students, was a man by the name of Saul. We know Saul from the book of Acts, and and Saul was dead set on trying to kind of hurt any person who would speak on the name of Jesus. And then he has an encounter with Jesus. He goes blind. He finds himself in downtown Damascus, and a man by the name of Ananias kind of comes over because in a vision with God, God has spoken to him and said, hey, I need you to go to this man. And and Ananias is like, are you kidding me? Saul is here to hurt us. And God's like, you don't see the plan. We're very good at kind of Google Earth, like zooming in, but God like zooms out and we can see the entire story. And God says, this man's gonna be my chosen instrument and he's gonna take this message to the ends of the earth. So Ananias shows up And Saul's eyes, just the scales fall off. He hasn't eaten for days. He's just carrying the sense of shame for what he's done. He murdered and martyred one of the first disciples, uh, Stephen. And all of a sudden, from that moment on, Saul becomes somebody different. Just like the unschooled, untrained, ordinary men became somebody different, now Saul is becoming somebody different. And he begins to understand Jesus all of his Jewish history, all of the messianic expectations, but it all begins to make sense. And I just want you to hear some of the things that he says about this man named Jesus. In the book of Colossians, he says this, that Jesus, the son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What's he saying? If you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is about, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is for, look at the life of Jesus. If you want to know how to live like God would want and intend for us to live, look at Jesus. He'll even say in chapter 2, beautifully, verse 9, for in Christ, for in the body, in the man of Christ, All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is Paul writing about Jesus and goes, I see it now. God came 
in the flesh as a man in all of the fullness of the deity of God lived in this man. And one of the greatest hymns, I mean, we sang some amazing songs this morning. One of the greatest hymns ever written and composed in the ancient Near East into those first churches came to a church in Philippi. And we might not know it as a song. I'm not going to try and sing it because I don't have a good voice. But I need you to hear these words. And it was profound theology. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, his very essence, he was God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to exploit others. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's he saying? He's saying this. This man was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's seated next to the Father, and they're looking out at creation, and it's as if Jesus says, I need to go. I need to give them access to you. I need to rescue them and remind them why they were meant to live. A mentor, a buddy of mine, Bob Goff, tells the story that he started kind of to surprise his son by taking uh, these skydiving classes because his son, Adam, loves to skydive. And so one day he knew Adam was going skydiving. And so he, he got there early and he had all the gear on and, and he walks out with his son like Top Gun style and, and his son sees him and he's like, I've been taking all the classes. I'm good to go. And so they're like, and his son was so excited. And then he's seated next to his son on the plane and his, his, his son just jumps out. And this fatherly instinct came over him where he was like, I'm coming after you, Adam. And he just jumped out of the plane. And, 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 I, and he goes, this is what Jesus did. It's like he saw all of the pain and the brokenness and jumped out of heaven and said, I am going to walk this earth. But he didn't come like a Greek. and He didn't come like a Roman. He didn't come looking the best. He didn't come in the, the highest towers. He didn't come trying to work his way up. He came as a servant. No real power. Nothing to use to, to exploit or take advantage of anybody. He just came as a man. And all he kept doing was pointing people to his father. Profoundly speaking that every person can be healed. Every person can be set free. Every person can experience the grace and the peace. Every person can have access to the Father. It led the, the next church, the first church, to say, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that was their belief. Every person was just one prayer away. And Jesus went to the cross and as he stood on that cross and hung on that cross, which was a symbol of cursing it was the lowest of the low, criminals, and, and people had done terrible things. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to take this 
symbolically taking all of the pain, all of the trauma, all of the struggle, all of the sin, all of the brokenness on him and said, you know what, this, this is on me. I take it. I take it so that every one of us can have access. And then they put him in a tomb, and three days later, he resurrects and says, death has been defeated. There is a new kingdom at hand. And all are invited. You hear that story and you either say liar, lunatic, or it does something in you that says, could you actually be who you say you are? Who is he to you? Is he a liar? And just think about that. Play that out. Just play it out for a second. Is he a liar? Then you have to wrestle and ask yourself, And what does this life mean? Just go for it. Just do, live however you want to live. If he's a lunatic, then loving your enemies and forgiving, and serving and having gifts and purpose, you just go, that's crazy. It's, it's crazy. But if he's Lord and grace and healing and peace and gifts and all of this stuff has been given to you, what, what does that mean? And the truth is that it's available to you today. And my prayer, I prayer this entire few weeks thinking about this message was I just hope that no one would leave this place saying, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, but there would be people who say, he just might be Lord and I need to talk more about it or he just might be Lord and I need to make a decision about that. And what I'd love to do is i just love to pray. I'd love to pray for you. Because I don't think that there's anything better when you come to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is because if someone predicts their death and resurrection and pulls it off, I'm just going to go with what he says, like Andy said. And I just, I want that for you. I want that joy for you. I want that love for you. I want that grace for you. I want that life for you. Because there's nothing, nothing, nothing that beats it. So I love just to pray and ask you a couple questions and then we're going to have the chance to celebrate communion as a community. Let's pray. God, I just want to imagine all of us on a journey following your son. I just imagine this rabbi just turning and imagine him looking at you and just saying, but what about you? Who do you say I am? What would your answer be? And maybe in your own way right now, just, just say it. In your own way, just to yourself, just what would you say? Would it be like Peter's? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. C.S. Lewis language, would it just simply be, you are Lord? Or would it be something else? And I, I, I just pray that, that if you're curious, that you would take a next step to, to join a discussion group or see a pastor after. 
And maybe for some of you, the question is, in this area of your life, who do you say I am? Through finances, with your time, with your marriage, with your addiction, with your wounds, with your pain, who do you say I am? And God, I pray that we as a community would begin to submit and to learn to see you as the first church did. That we would be moved to express who you are to the ends of the earth. Thank you for trusting us with your story. And all God's people said,